Mighty God and everlasting Father, we ask that you would grant to us the power of the Spirit that we might be able to understand your word clearly. We ask, O God, that you would grant to us the intercession of the Holy Spirit, the illumination of the Spirit, that as we look at this particular section of Scripture, that your gracious hand would demonstrate Christ more clearly to us, strengthen us, and aid us to be obedient to you with true faith. We ask that you would do this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 22. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 24. Genesis 22, 1 through 24. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then, on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife. And the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. And they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. He bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar, upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its thorns, by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants, as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendant shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose, and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. 
Now it came to pass after these things that it was told to Abraham, saying, Indeed, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Moses' firstborn, Moses' brother, Kemuel the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaph, and Bethuel. And Bethuel begot Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother, his concubine, whose name was Reumah. Also bore Teba, Gaham, Thahash, Maacah. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to us. We see here, in this particular chapter, that it begins with a test. Genesis 22, 1-2. After these things. In other words, the restful peace and prosperity of the Lord that God had given Abraham. After this short time of peace and prosperity, God tested Abraham. To test, it means to put to the test, proving its quality, or the going on of a trial, which had been put on by another, or to refine something. God put Abraham to a test of character and faith. And so what was this test? God said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. He did not say simply, take Isaac and sacrifice him. The repetition and play on words where God causes him to remember the promise and how much he waited for the promise to take effect is very poignant here. Whom you love. This is the son of Abraham's old age. This is the son whom he loves. This is the son of promise. The standard of this love for humankind is by Abraham and the love he had for the promised son. It is extravagant love here. And he wants him to go to the land of Moriah as he had in Genesis 12.1. What could have been going on in his mind? Did he question God? Did he rebel? Did he cry out? Did he remember Ishmael? He thought it was evil to send Ishmael away, if you remember. Imagine the struggle. Imagine how it would have pricked him in his heart. Thank you. Imagine what Abraham may have been thinking. Well, the interesting part about this is that he obeyed faithfully by leaving the next morning. He was obedient. Provisions were made, and he and his son Isaac, with two other youths, made their way to a mountain that God would point out. And we gain insight from his words. Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So, he took his son to go kill his son, as God said. He went with these two lads. They got to the mountain, but then he said, we... They said, he said, we will come back to you. What could he have possibly been thinking? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us specifically what he was thinking. Even though God told him to kill his son, still, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, that's here, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, 
from which he also received them in a figurative sense. So even at this particular point, Abraham knew that he was going to have Isaac back. Abraham knew that even if he's, he plunged the knife into Isaac, that he would receive Isaac back from the dead, and he would be raised by God from the dead, because by faith he trusted God and he trusted his word. This is true faith. He trusted exactly what God had told him, that Isaac would be a blessing, that Isaac is the son of promise. Abraham was going to slay this boy. Before he ever reached the mountain, he knew he was going to do it. Isaac was made to carry the wood for the sacrifice. He saw the knife and the fire, but there was no sacrifice. What was Isaac thinking? He could have ran. He could have went away. Abraham's response to his son's question was answered very ingeniously. Father, where's the sacrifice? My son, God, will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Yahweh, Jireh. God will see to it. God will provide. He places the answer actually in God's hands. He made the altar. He bound his son. He laid him on the altar and raised the knife. The lad, that meaning was that he's probably a young man, he's probably a teenager, but we don't hear any screaming, we don't see any problems, we just see obedience. And the angel of God, the angel of Yahweh, called from heaven to stop Abraham from plunging the dagger into his son. The time of testing was over, and Abraham had passed the test. In all resolution, he was going to kill Isaac in obedience to God. Abraham was a God-fearer. He was confirmed by the words of the Almighty that says, Now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Had God not already known this? Did God not know what was going to happen? Of course he did. But he lays out a new perspective. It was all done for the strengthening of Abraham and the subsequent witness which would come forth from his obedience, such as this, this very sermon today for you. And that application, which will be brought out from what Abraham had done in obedience to God. It is important to remember that Abraham did not know that this was a test. We, the reader, catch this because of the way that the writer writes it and says, and gives us much like an anticlimax in verse 1, this is a test. But Abraham didn't know that. Abraham did exactly what God wanted him to do, regardless of what the outcome was going to be. Abraham saw, though, that the ram was caught in the thicket, that God provides the ram used as a sacrifice there on the altar instead of Isaac. So Abraham conveniently and correctly names it Yahweh Yairah or Jehovah Jireh, God who provides. The angel of God speaks a second time the confirmation. God will surely multiply his descendants and has sworn by himself that all the promises shall come to pass because Abraham was obedient to God. Blessing, I will bless you. 
and multiplying I will multiply your descendants. They will rule and reign on the earth over their enemies. And so, after this test, after this confirmation, Abraham returns to Beersheba and dwells there. Well, we see from this particular passage, first, very clearly, that there are types here that scream out to us. Types that are seen in Isaac of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very obvious from the passage that typology is present, that things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ are set here for our instruction. The third day is reminiscent of the third day that Christ rose from the dead. There were others with Isaac where Christ was sacrificed between others. The wood was laid on Isaac as the cross of wood was laid on Christ. He was Abraham's only begotten son. It's said in the passage many times, your only son, as Christ's was God. Isaac was going to be a burnt offering. Christ was our burnt offering. Isaac was going to be raised from the dead in Abraham's mind. Christ was raised from the dead on the third day. The typology, though, doesn't take its final course. Isaac is not slain. The typology, though, is fulfilled in Christ as Jesus is the Lamb of God slain. Isaac didn't become the sacrifice because Christ was going to be the sacrifice. He's going to be the perfect sacrifice. Killing Isaac would have been just... Isaac, as a fallen sinner, deserves the punishment of God. It wasn't wrong for God to tell Abraham, if he so wanted, to slay a sinner. But rather, Isaac could not be the sacrifice upon the altar. He was not Christ. He was not perfect. He was not the one who was going to take away the sin of the world. We should rejoice in the fulfillment that is only done through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is the difference between seeing, much like the analogy of seeing a billboard with a picture of a steak dinner on it and eating a real steak dinner. One is simply just a picture. The other is real. However, it's not simply the point of the passage to demonstrate the typology that Isaac is of Jesus Christ to come. Certainly, God will provide. Certainly, Jesus Christ is the one who fulfills God's purpose. Certainly, he is the one who redeems men. And the fallen condition of men is redeemed by the Lord Jesus that way. But that is not the point of the passage specifically. The point of the passage specifically surrounds Abraham. Abraham was tested by God. Isaac was the secondary theme of the passage. Abraham was the primary theme. If you want to think of it this way, Isaac was the secondary sacrifice that's going on in the passage, and Abraham is the primary sacrifice going on in the passage. You might say to yourself, I'm not exactly sure what you mean by that. Why is Abraham a sacrifice? Well, the one who brought the victim made the sacrifice to God. Similarly, the son was the sacrifice, but there is a greater weight placed on Abraham because this is a test. The testing of God 
was a test to see whether Abraham would be faithful. God was testing Abraham to see if he would be a sacrifice in his life, in his devotion to God. God already knows whether or not he would be. But look to Abraham and look to what great blessings God lavished upon him afterward. God uses testing as a means to bless his people always. God required something which cost Abraham everything. And Abraham was tested to see if he really loved the Lord or not. It's easy to love the Lord when there's no test going on. It's easy to love the Lord in a time of prosperity. Abraham was to be a sacrifice, a sacrifice in his life to God. And Christians, in this way, are to be a type of sacrifice as well. Typology is more directed to Abraham, because Abraham is a prototype of our faithfulness. It's true faith confirmed in him. Thus, no matter what God requires of a Christian, they're to wholeheartedly follow God without question. Hollywood often portrays Abraham as rebellious when God tells him to sacrifice his son, yelling out, crying out, praying, oh God, I don't want to do it. But we find no such thing in the text, none at all. His belief in God was so strong that there was no need for even questioning God's command. Oh God, why? We don't see that anywhere in the text. Christians should follow the same example. The faith which Christians hold in Christ should cause them to shout, James 1, 2, My brethren, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds, for the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Not, Oh God, why me? Oh God, why this trial? Oh God, why right now? Oh God, is there another way I don't want to do this? Yet Christianity as a whole often moans and groans because of trials which they go through. What trial would compare with sacrificing your children? Or what of receiving a trial as Job did? Has God ever gone to such extremes with other Christians? Really, the Christian trial in America today, in our world, is when our pool pump breaks and when you have to get it fixed. What a trial it is. The Christian is owned by God and God has every right to require anything of him for the testing of his faith. Christians are not their own bosses. God may require anything of them at any time to test them. And God requires great sacrifice for Christians. He requires so much of Christians that Paul writes in Romans 12:1, Therefore, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your spiritual act of worship. A Christian's life is to be a sacrifice to God, just as Abraham sacrificed his life in obedient worship. And the request Abraham had was extraordinary. Give me what you love, is what God said to him. 
God even pressed the issue on purpose with him. He didn't simply say, take your son Isaac and go sacrifice him. He said, take your son, your only son whom you love. As if God was to say, I know what you love, Abraham. And I'm going to require what you love of you this day. Why? Every Christian must be confirmed in their faith that they love Christ most of all. Christians must love Christ most, more than anything else, more than their house or their job or their cars or their wife or their children or their husbands or their friends or their family or anything. Christ specifically said that to be his disciple, to follow after him, you have to hate your mother and your father and your sisters and your brothers and your friends. You have to hate them in comparison to the love that you would have for him. Many people say, oh, no, that's not what Jesus meant. He doesn't mean that you're supposed to hate your mother and father and sister and brothers. No, yes, Jesus specifically uses the word hate. And he uses the word hate because in comparison to the love that you should have for him, that love that you have for your mother or father or sister or brother should pale in comparison to it. Abraham came out of that time of testing because he didn't love his son the most. Abraham came out of that time of testing because he loved God more than he loved Isaac. Listen to what God did as father. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Paul's words are an echo of the exact same Greek words used in the Septuagint that we find in the Old Testament concerning this chapter. God gave up that which he loved most. That which the Father loved most. The Son gave up the Son to death. And the Son who loved the Father most accomplished redemption and died. Because he desired, first and foremost, to please the Father. And that is what God requires of the Christian. The Christian life is a continual offering before the Father. And nothing's too great for the Father to ask. And too great for the Christian to perform. Because of the love which should be between them. Between you and God. If a Christian does not have that kind of love, they have to seriously consider whether or not they truly love Christ at all. Because worldly enjoyments are no match for the preciousness of Christ. So you have to ask yourself the question, do you love Christ the most? What would you do if the same command was given to you by God today? Take your child, take your spouse, take your friend, bind them and sacrifice them as a burnt offering to me. Do you say, I'm not sure? Do you say, I don't know what I would do? That's actually already, even in its minuscule form, rebellion against God, for God could require anything from you at any time, at any moment. He could take your job from you, your spouse, your children, your house, your belongings, your health, any of those things to see whether or not you're truly faithful to him, simply to test you.
we are gods. It's as God said to his people, I have called you by name. You're mine. And I am able to do with you as I so please. Testing then confirms your faith in Christ. Imagine the lost person. The person who doesn't have Christ. What is his foundation? His foundation is his spouse, his job, his house. His foundation is his children, his garden, whatever it happens to be. When a lost person's husband dies, their world crumbles. They can't handle that. When a lost person's material possessions are destroyed, that is their foundation. That is what their life is built on. It's built on that particular foundation. That's their all. That's their life. But see, nothing can shake the Christian because for the Christian, the foundation is unshakable, which is Christ, which is God. Nothing in this life but Christ should mean the most to us. Imagine when God told Ezekiel that he was going to kill his wife and that he shouldn't mourn for her. I'm going to take your wife from you. It's going to be an object lesson for Israel, the people. I don't even want you to mourn for her. Ezekiel needs to love God more than he loves his wife. He needs to trust God more than he would place trust in things of the world. In reality, this test with Abraham, this test for us as well, was bringing to light, really, the first commandment. Loving God only. If Abraham had held to his son, he would have loved his son more than God and more than the promises of God. But instead, God specifically demonstrates to us through this action, through this narrative, that the most precious thing to Abraham was God himself. And that he had no other idols. What is most precious to you? What is most important to you? What replaces God? If it's Christ, if the Lord Jesus Christ is most precious to us, how do we show him? God required Abraham to act, not just to think, not just to say, not just to move the lips, but specifically to act. To act and to do what he told him to do. Christ requires that we too live as sacrifices. We cannot just talk it. We must walk it. We have to follow along. We have to heed his word and walk his word and follow his word. And Jesus Christ will give us every day ample opportunity to show our love for him through the tests that he sends our way. Imagine saying, I hope this affliction will be a blessing to me. I always feel much need of God's afflicting hand. In the world of active labor, there is so little time for watching and for bewailing and seeking grace to oppose the sins of ministry that I always feel it a blessed thing when the Savior takes me aside the crowd as he took the blind man out of the town and removes the veil and clears the way for obscuring mists and by his word and spirit lead to a deeper peace 
and a holier walk. Robert Murray McShane said that. I hope this affliction will be a blessing to me. I always feel much need of God's afflicting hand. Is that the way that you think? Is that the way that you act? Are you looking for God to best test you and to best afflict you that you might watch better, pray better, follow Christ more, cling to him more? But there is a caution. There's a caution that reversed, it's never allowed. Testing Christ is never allowed by us. God can test us, but we cannot test him. What is testing him? Testing him is not obeying his will for your life. The Israelites tested God in the wilderness again and again in sin. It's not believing that God is the God who provides. The God who always provides as he sees fit. When we disobey, we are testing God back. And what does the Bible say? How then have you agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Acts 5.9 And then Christ judged them. It's hard enough to be a Christian and to obey Christ. But what about somebody who's even lost? For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind, that is the lost mind, is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They can't. It's impossible. Oh, what a miserable condition it is that a person would be lost. Because they're not like Abraham. They don't have the ability to have faith. Instead, they would have been selfish. They would have kept him back. They would not have offered him up. Yet, for the Christian, the Christian sees God's plan as greater, as better, as sanctifying. There are great blessings to pour upon those who find Christ precious, most of all, who don't violate the first commandment, loving the Lord your God and Him only. The greatest blessing is that you will find Christ even more precious as he pours out his grace upon you. The ram was sacrificed for Isaac. Imagine what Abraham would have thought at that particular point that I don't have to slay my son. Instead, God has provided. He named the place God provides. Yet Christ, the eternal lamb, was sacrificed for us. What a blessing to contemplate to live upon. What a privilege to give our lives to the slain lamb who has redeemed us. We shall be considered the blessed of Christ. Abraham now had a mark upon his memory in this test that God considered him specifically and told him that he was a God-fearer. He was blessed in that way. So is every Christian that has a healthy fear that God will require anything of us at any time. We are called blessed by God in that way. Are we ready then, at a moment's notice, 
to give everything up for the cause of Christ, whatever he might call us to, to be blessed in the end. The test will come. And we won't necessarily see it coming. It may be a trial. It might be a test. We have to be watchful. As Abraham had prepared all things for the burnt offering of his son, we have to prepare our heart for the sacrifice of our life to the service of God. God's most precious gift to us was his son, his one and only son. And he was pleased that Christ was sent to suffer for us. The question that we ask, the question that this narrative points us specifically to is whether or not we find him most precious to us. Or are we idolaters? Abraham was no idolater. Abraham sacrificed his life, would have sacrificed his son, would have done whatever God desired him to do because God was most precious to him. Is Christ most precious to us? Let's pray. Mighty God and everlasting Father, we come before you asking that you would be exceedingly gracious to us, we who are sinners before you. We ask, O Lord, that you would increase our faith, at least increase it as much as Abraham had. At least give it to us as much as Abraham would have. You gave him so much, Lord, he didn't waver, Hebrews tells us. Not only that, but even if his son was to die, he trusted you to raise him from the dead. We ask, O Lord, that you would be gracious to us, to strengthen us, to help us, to aid us, that we might have that true faith confirmed in us as well. Just as Abraham was faithful, we pray that you would help us to be faithful to Christ, who is our sacrifice, who is our Redeemer and our Mediator. And we so ask that you would aid us to confirm ourselves in you, to consecrate ourselves to you. We ask for your help in this, knowing full well that we are unable to do it in and of ourselves. We need your sanctifying hand, your consecrating hand, to increase our faith that we might love you with a whole heart, that we might not be idolaters. Abraham knew what it was to worship pagan gods before he was converted. And certainly, regardless of what you spoke to him, he was not going back to that, no matter how hard the trial might have been. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would cause our faith to be as sharp and powerful as that. That our lives might be a sacrifice to you and that we might, O oh Lord, be living sacrifices every day, willing to do whatever you call us to do, resting our heart and our mind and our soul only upon you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, 
in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.